Welcome to the Truth Be Known podcast, bringing you the objective truth boldly, candidly, and without apology. Welcome to this week's episode. Well, welcome back, guys, to another episode of the Truth Be Known podcast. I'm Nathaniel Jolly. And I am not Ekitex porn guy. I'm Eric Dodson. <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad um, for those of you who were really confused because these brothers look very similar, as you can see. Right. It's, I have the uh, guns, too. I just keep them covered, you know? <laughs> oh, there you go. And uh, speaking of Eki, um, he's uh, off somewhere, you know, around kissing his biceps today. I don't know. Um, no, I think he's uh, out of town or something. But um, it's good to have Eric back on. And again, Eric is one of the board members of the Truth Be Known Ministries. And uh, actually, some some super exciting news. Uh, we just got some of our official paperwork done back from the state. Um, and so the ministry is moving forward and uh, working on the website. And so hopefully in the very near future, uh, that'll be available. And uh, we'll we'll talk a lot more about the Truth Be Known Ministries um, so super excited about that. Um, but for today's podcast episode, uh, kind of picking up uh, where we ended last episode. So if you didn't hear last episode, would really encourage you to go listen to that. It was uh, episode 169. And we've done 169 episodes. That's crazy. Um, but on how to vote biblically. And um, at the end of that, we just started, we just mentioned kind of the fact that regardless of how things turn out um, in, 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 the, in the election this year, God's not sitting in the heavens, wringing his hands, thinking, oh man, I didn't see that coming. Um, you know, and I mentioned the fact that in that everything that happens is in fact preordained by God. Now that's kind of a mind-blowing mm -hmm. statement for some people who haven't really considered how God's sovereign hand works in and through just all of human life, let alone election. So, I thought we'd just talk about that today. Um, I, I think a lot of believers are, uh, you've got some believers who are just in uh, dire straits and in, in stress and anguish over getting the right guy in, whoever they think that might be. And if we don't get the right guy in, you know, what's going to happen? I think you have some believers that are like, I'm done with this mess, uh, whatever. I'm just going to go back to um, petting my dog and watching the football game or whatever. Um, you've got some believers who um, are, I, I think, rightfully uh, engaging in ways that are faithful, um, but understanding God's sovereign hand. And so you have all these kinds of different views. And so I think it'd just be helpful for us today to talk about how God works in and through all uh, all this. And, you know, what if the right guy, quote unquote, right guy doesn't get in um, and things get worse? You know, how should Christians view that? Um, how should Christians uh, understand God's hand in, you know, the decline of culture? Uh, so a lot of questions. Um, so let me just ask you, starting off, Eric. So we talked about how to vote bi biblically last week. Um, what happens if the right guy doesn't get in? Yeah, well, I, the good news is we don't have to worry about that because from God's perspective, the right guy will get in no matter what. Um, I know the you know the heart of people when they think of that is you know what happens if the 
the better candidate or the more closely aligned with biblical principles candidate doesn't win. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the wrong guy. And I think, um, you know, we need to rest in God's sovereignty. Now, of course, there's caricatures on both sides of that. Like, and I think I've, I'm growing in, in general in my appreciation for uh, thinking through the narrow way paradigm uh, about a lot of issues. And I think this is one of those, you know, when we consider the narrow way, we need to understand that that necessarily means there's ditches on both sides. And so, you know, we want to avoid that. We want to avoid uh, the ditch in this area of fear and thinking, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? We're all doomed. Uh, and we also want to avoid kind of the other side of, um, you know, it doesn't matter. God's going to do whatever he wants to do. So we take this laissez-faire attitude, you know, and I'm not proposing some kind of Hegelian dialectic uh, approach or, you know, what is now called third wayism, but we just do want to pursue the faithful biblical model, which is, you know, to see our citizenship here as a stewardship, knowing our citizenship in heaven is the ultimate thing. And so we can rest in God's goodness and yet still pursue faithful stewarding of our time, our efforts, our vote, our, you know, exercise of free speech, all those things in a way that will push forward uh, God's agenda, the biblical agenda, while recognizing like God does execute perfectly wise judgment at times. And we can see all throughout history, and then we're going to get into that some here, all throughout history examples of God using his judgment of certain people, certain nations to further his grand redemptive plan. And so I think, you know, the, the better we have a big picture of you, we'll know, you know, the right guy is going to get in according to God's purposes. Now, it may not be the best, most pure, righteous person, um, but I'm one of those people that thinks, you know, the fact that Donald Trump with all his foibles and all his uh, atrocious history of, you know, womanizing and his inconsistency on issues, now his kind of softness on abortion, like the fact that he is the so-called conservative candidate, like that alone should let us know we're under judgment. It's just a matter of like, will God give us a slight reprieve um, or not? You know, I think I think uh, the best illustration I've heard of it, it might've been Doug Wilson. I'm not sure who I first heard it from, but the idea is like, you know, we're driving towards a cliff. It's just a matter of, are we going to elect the person who's going to drive us at 90 miles an hour or the person that's going to drive us at 45 and give a little more time for things to work out? Um, yeah. But we're pretty much driving to the cliff either way. Yeah. You, you know, let me go to scripture because you made a comment that um, the, the right guy is going to get in no matter what. And so people might be thinking, well, huh, there's one side that's definitely not the right guy. Um, right. And, and so you know, you, you what you said is just straight from the Word of God, Romans thirteen one. We've heard a lot of Romans thirteen one discussed, but I think we've missed uh, the second portion of it because we haven't been focused on that. Right? We've been focused kind of on you know thirteen one a sort of. Um, but it says this: every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, and that's kind of where the discussion's been the last several years. But that's not all of the verse. It goes on to say, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist have been appointed by God. Um, and, and so, I mean, you don't get any clearer than that. Um, you, you can't do any finagling uh, in the original language to make it sound like something different. And I think what I find particularly interesting in that passage is that Paul 
repeats his statement a second time in a different way, right? He says, for there's no authority except from God. Okay, we got that. And then in the same sentence, he says, and those which exist have been appointed by God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he just really shores up the reality that whether we get this guy or that guy um, on, on the highest of levels, it's because that's ultimately who God wants there. Um, Amen. Yeah. Well, I would say like when I say the right guy is going to get in no matter what, I mean the right guy in terms of God's plan and yeah. God's agenda, not the righteous guy. Like there is no righteous, right? And we know that we we celebrate in evangelism. There is none righteous, no, not one. And yet we want to act like politicians, like there's one righteous and one unrighteous. No, neither of them are righteous. Um, or if there's more than one candidate or more than two candidates in this election, none of them will be righteous. Um, and so I'm not saying the righteous person or even necessarily the more righteous person, if we grade it on a scale, I'm just saying the the person who God intends as he's working out his global plan and his uh, grand redemptive plan that has spanned all of history, it's not like that's going to fall apart in the 2024 election in the United States. Like yeah. it hasn't fallen apart in all the other elections in the United States. So it's not going to fall apart in that. And it hasn't fallen apart in the rise and fall of, you know, leaders throughout history. Like they've always been under God's hands, right? Proverbs tells us the, the heart of the King is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. And he directs it where he wishes. Like not only is the person that, God wants to be going to be elected in 2024, if God chose to save him, which I pray whichever candidate gets in, that God would choose to save them. And that, you know, I I pray often that God would send revivals through the halls of government in our country. Um, But that's up to him. That's not up to me. What's up to me is to be a faithful steward, to walk by faith, not by fear, and how I respond to these things and how I steward the opportunities that he's given me um, and entrust him with the results. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's something that, I mean, it really goes along well with what we talked about last episode. You know, the purpose of last episode was really to kind of convince people that to to vote biblically, you you have to know your Bible. You you and and more than just know the verses, you've got to understand the principles. You know, because many things in Scripture doesn't tell you exactly how to apply it. It, You've got to you've got to get to the principle of the doctrine so that then you can rightly apply it. Um, and far too many of us, and I think we're all tempted this, is we we do the things we do out of emotionalism, right? Out of fear or out of, you know, whatever, rather than saying, okay, what's the Bible teach about this issue? How then can I apply that? And so here we have an issue where we're forced to understand the reality that uh, we, we've had We've had President Biden because that's who God wanted us to have. Um, and yet we also have human responsibility, right, to, uh, to, to support those things which we can support biblically um, and to defy those things, uh, reject those things which we can't. Um, and, and our role is just to be faithful and then let God do what he wants to do. So we don't know how God moves the hands of those. Um, he he turns the heart of kings. He works through the wicked. Um, but ultimately, for the believer, the question is just, am I being faithful? And then I don't need to fear because God's sovereign and, and he's going to work it out the way he wants to work it out. It, you know, and I love Paul in First Timothy. You talked about how you pray 
for um, there to be revival in, uh, and we understand, you know, when you say that, you mean real revival where people are, yep. their lives are being impacted. There's some permanent change. Their spirit, of, their, the fruit of the spirits being made uh, evident in people's lives. And um, uh, I think sometimes our emotionalism, especially when we think about who's going to be the president or changes in the government, we kind of get this like battle mentality where the other side's the enemy. And so we're no longer praying for them. Um, but remember, it's God's hand who puts the king in place, in our case, the president. Uh, then in First Timothy, I mean, he starts off by telling Timothy in chapter two, first of all, then I exhort that petitions and prayers, requests and thanksgiving be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a, a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And so the expectation um, from God to the believer is that one, we understand his sovereign hand. Um, is at work when we think of rulers. And then the expectation is that we pray for them um, wholeheartedly, uh, hoping that we might, you know, have a tranquil and, and peaceful life. Uh, I don't know that we do that very well, especially during election years here in our country. Yeah. Amen. And I think in some ways we neglect to be thankful for how the Lord has used um you know, even wicked nations for his ends all along. Like I would say America's never been a, a quote unquote Christian nation. Um, if you read kind of Dr. Frazier's book, I think it's called the the faith of the founding fathers. You'll see that, you know, for the most part, now there's some exceptions because there's always some exceptions, but for the most part, our founders used Judeo-Christian values as a morality. They understood that mm -hmm. democracy doesn't work with a, a, wantonly immor immoral people. And so the more the morality principles that they saw in Christianity and Judaism, they felt like would be a good check on society. But they weren't believers, most of them, I don't think. I mean, at least not if you analyze. And Dr. Frazier does a really good job. He doesn't he doesn't analyze primarily their political speeches, because we all know politicians lie, but he analyzes their private speech and their church attendance and those kind of things to see like were they discernibly believers? When we think of, often we think of Romans 1 and easily use it to criticize people now, but Romans 1 starts with, though they knew God, they did not acknowledge him. Like That's the start of the downward spiral. And I think that's where our country as a, as a country started with an acknowledgement of God and that morality principles would be helpful, but not a recognizing him as God, right? So we've never been a Christian nation. And yet, God has still used this nation uh, to provide opportunities for the spread of the gospel that are amazing, right? And so we can thank the Lord for the fact that a nation that never has been righteous from the beginning uh, has been used to do mighty, mighty things in the, the Lord's outworking of the gospel and sending missionaries around the world and furthering the spread of the true gospel, even though those in leadership were wicked and didn't recognize it. Like, that's a great thing. And all I'm saying is like, that's a, that's a optimistic view of looking at like God is taking this miserable uh, mm. situation and getting great glory out of it. And, and that's no different today. Like God can use the, the miserable state and the further, you know, we're further along in the Romans one decline, 
Um, but he can still do great things and he still is doing great things. Um, you know, our, our church is growing. I know a lot of other churches that are growing and that's, that's the Lord working to accomplish his purposes, even while like he's not thwarted by who's in the white house and what their policies are not in the slightest bit. Like he's on the throne and he's ruling over all this. He's directing this according to his authority. I was talking with a, a friend of mine last year, we were working through all these different circumstances with personal issues and and how God has worked out things. And we can always, you know, hindsight is where we see God's providence most clearly and most, you know, certainly. Uh, and we just talked about how, like, you know, if, if all the world and all of history is, you know, the domino game, the Lord knows every domino in its place and how it's not only going to affect the domino next to it, but the domino further down the line. And he has them all in place and he's holding them all in place. If one of those things was different, it all falls apart, right? But the Lord is controlling it. So they're all perfect. Like he knows how what we're saying here today is going to be heard by somebody, you know, 20 years from now when they're dealing through the, you know, annals of podcast history and yeah. how that's going to affect them, right? Like, you know, I don't know that. I don't even think that. Like, I'm not thinking, oh yeah, we're going to have a eternal impact here. But the Lord knows how everything works together and how everything's going to work itself out. And he's orchestrating it. That is the most God-glorifying, comforting thing to know that he's in charge of this. Like, that doesn't mean, again, doesn't mean we're nihilists and we just throw up our hands and don't say anything. But we walk in faithfulness. We walk as faithful stewards confidently because we know he's in charge of all things. He's orchestrating all things according to his good, good, wise plan, his perfectly wise plan. Um, and that's just a great comfort and a great joy to know, like, I can stand up and preach the gospel. And if the Lord ever gave me a, you know, audience with, you know, some powerful government dignitary, I can stand up, and preach the gospel confidently, no matter, knowing that no matter how they respond to me, the Lord will use it as he wishes. He's sovereign. Amen. I think that's so helpful for us, especially, especially in election years. Um, but I think also just as the general decline of society where, you know, I think for a lot of believers, right, there's there, there's the tension between human responsibility and God's sovereignty. Right. So it, we, we would we would all argue that it, it's our responsibility to promote righteousness and holiness and um, and the things of God in whatever ways we can, wherever we have the opportunities and whatever that looks like in our personal life. And every person will have different opportunities and different ways to do that. And yet, um, not to also not to despair at the results, because we have a set of results uh, that we want in our mind, um, but that may be completely different from what God has uh, planned. Um, and so I think it was Charles Spurgeon right, who said, uh, the sovereignty of God is the pillow on which I rest my head at night or something to that effect. Um, and, and his point was just recognizing um, that God is ultimately in control. I mean, if he's not in control, then by definition, he's actually not sovereign. So, you know, every Christian will say, yes, uh, God is sovereign. Um, sometimes I think we forget what that means, because if you say he's in control, you'll get a little bit of pushback. Um, well, if he's sovereign, he has to be in control. If he's not in control, he's actually not sovereign. Um, and so there's, uh, I think, a lot of joy and contentment that ought to come from that. And so let's just talk about our culture and God's sovereign hand in that 
obviously none of us know what's on the the mind of God, his, you know, uh, his secret will, as it were. Um, but we we know that if you go through the Old Testament, I mean, this is just a normal thing God's always done. His, his character and nature hasn't changed. Um, look how many times he's sold his, he's sent um, his people into captivity. Um, and God did that. Make no mistake. God brought wicked kings uh, to to hold captive his people four times. Now, I think we need to understand w- for what purpose um, that was. And, you know, in almost it, we were talking about this before the podcast, in almost every instance, when that happens, the, the purpose was to bring his people back to faithfulness, right? That they would repent. They, in almost every case, they had uh, turned to idols, you know, they had turned away from the Lord. Um, they had done what the Lord wished them not to do. Um, oftentimes it involved intermarrying and mixing with nations they, they shouldn't have gotten involved with. And so God brings along a wicked ruler. Uh, they end up in captivity for, you know, 400 years or whatever. Um, multiple times, right, we find this. And it, it was God's loving character that did that because that's what they needed to repent and come back to the Lord. And so now, you know, most Christians would say, yeah, uh, America's under God's judgment. I don't think we understand what that means sometimes. And I don't think we ask the right questions. The The right question, if we believe we're under God's judgment, is not, okay, how do we get our guy in office? Like, that's not the solution. Um, right. Yeah, we have a responsibility. So don't hear what I'm not saying. Um, the last podcast, you can go listen to that. We, we, we really hammer down. We do still have responsibility. But if we're under the judgment of God, we should be asking the question, well, for what purpose does God bring nations under judgment? Do we see anything of that in scripture? And I would argue we do. Um, and so, and so let's just talk about the church because, okay, we're under God's judgment. We hear that a lot. I think people, um, are fearful about, uh, at least some people are fearful about, uh, what if we have another eight years of, you know, the terrible ruling we've been under, um, it, you know, what happens to the church? Um, what happens if we have another COVID incident? Um, you know, what happens if things get uh, harder, if persecution ramps up? And um, just share a little bit about what you were sharing with me before we started about God's goodness and how he's worked in church history in the midst of all of that. Yeah. We just kind of want to give people an idea of, listen, God has got this. He's, we can trust him. Um, just because things don't look the way we want them to look doesn't mean that God's sitting in the heavens trying to figure out what he's doing. Yeah, amen. And like you mentioned, you know, it starts in the Old Testament. You see it all through uh, Old Testament scripture. The people of God are brought under chastisement. They're brought under judgment. And God uses it to purify his people, to to display, to make clear who the remnant is, the faithful ones. Um, to get them to call out upon him from deliverance. I mean, the book of Judges is is a perfect example of just over and over again, God raising up wicked kings, wicked rulers to oppress his people for the purpose of chastisement. And that's his good, like that's his good plan for his people, right? He He disciplines us because he loves us. Like I'm more concerned personally when when people go off into sin and it seems like they're prospering 
because that to me indicates they've been handed over. When somebody's off in their sin and God's bringing discipline in their life, while I do have compassion that their circumstances are hurting and, and those kind of things, I'm also somewhat praising the Lord because that shows he's not letting them just enjoy their sin and go on. Like he is bringing discipline to them. And it always makes me uh, more hopeful that they're going to turn because I see God hasn't just fully handed them over yet. Um, and so that's consistent through Old Testament. We can also see it broad scale in church history. I mean, uh, even if you think just in the, the New Testament, in the book of Acts, God uses persecution to spread. He tells them, you know, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth, right? But he pushes that. He makes that happen in the rest of the book, largely through persecution. Like they're kind of huddled. There are thousands being added to their number by the day in Jerusalem. And persecution comes and they start spreading out and they go further and they go further, right? So God used persecution. He used evil rulers in Jerusalem to accomplish the mission that he said they would accomplish at the beginning of the book. And I would argue that's just continued throughout history. The gospel has continued to go to the uttermost parts of the earth, largely because of persecution. Roman persecution spreads it, and then uh, for a time, Rome is friendly, but then as the Roman Catholic Church becomes uh, to persecute those with the true gospel, it spreads. I mean, one of my kind of favorite stories in church history is uh, Augustine of Canterbury. That's Second Augustine, you know, not to be confused with the one that we know for most of his theology, but Augustine of Canterbury. Um, he's a, a bishop, I think, in Northern Africa, and two pale-looking slaves are brought down from the British Isles, and he sees them in the market, and he's just kind of fascinated by these really pale people and ends up going to Britain to take the gospel there. They haven't heard the gospel there. Well, that was wickedness that was used to bring to his attention that there was this group of people and the gospel went there. And then as the Roman Catholic Church pers is, is persecuting and even using the wickedness of Henry VIII, like I don't think the Reformation came to England because Henry VIII had pure motives, right? He was, yeah. you know... He was the Donald Trump of his day, it sounds like. You know, he was womanizing and, and wanting excuses for himself. Uh, but nevertheless, the Lord used that to bring the the Reformation to the English-speaking world in large part. And then, you know, when the Church of England begins to persecute the nonconformists and the Puritans, like that's largely what leads to many of them fleeing to the what is now the United States, right? So the Lord's consistently moved using persecution, using wicked rulers to push the gospel around the globe. And that is, it's not to say like we justify evil or we celebrate evil, but we see the Lord's goodness in it and we see his sovereignty over it and we see how he continues to use it. Again, I think he's used our country, which has from a leadership perspective been uh, wicked from the start in knowing the need for morality, but not submitting themselves to the Lord. Um, He's used that to do great things for the furtherance of his gospel. And if the Lord, you know, sees fit to bring further judgment on him, on our nation now, and the gospel goes somewhere else, we should be praising the Lord for that. We should be thankful for his good sovereign plan. And and I think the big thing I would, I always encourage people is he's still sovereign in his judgment and nothing's going to thwart his judgment, just like nothing's going to thwart his choice to save the elect nothing's going to thwart his judgment either. And so woe is us if we put ourselves, because we think too highly of ourselves, we put ourselves in the position of opposing 
the will of God in judgment um, by thinking, oh, we can change this if we elect the right person. Like that's a very prideful place to be. Um, and I don't want to be in that place. Again, doesn't mean we don't steward our vote. Doesn't mean we try to make the wisest decision possible. Doesn't mean we don't use our prophetic voice, as it were, to speak the truth to people, um, all people. And when we're giving opportunities to those in government and in, you know, positions of authority, we want to speak gospel truth to them as well. Um, but we we will not do anything different than what God has purposed to come about with regard to the government of our country and uh, the general trajectory of our country. Like, he's in charge, not us, right? And he's going to build his church. We could take hope in that. Even in the midst of that, there's going to be a remnant. He's going to build his church. Um, but again, to kind of circle back, it's called the narrow way. <laughs> the narrow way. Yeah. Many are on the road to destruction. Few will find the narrow way. Um, and so I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm not a language expert, but it seems like more people are on the road to destruction <laughs> than are on the road to salvation. I don't say that lightly. It doesn't bring me yeah. joy to say that, but yeah. if I'm going to embrace the truth of scripture, I'm going to recognize that's what our Lord said about salvation, about entrance into the kingdom, right? So we shouldn't expect we shouldn't expect a majority. Yeah, I don't I don't yeah. know how you get around that. Yeah, now I and I think that's a good point. I mean, all through Scripture we hear the language of the remnant, um, and yeah, just like you said, I, I mean, narrow means narrow. It means not many, right? Broad means broad, and and it means a lot. Um, and so the language is pretty clear there. And I think it's God's graciousness to us that, you know, mm -hmm. he gave us just really clear language to describe that. Um, yeah. And I think so we think about the judgment of America. It's good to think about these things. I think it's good to, um, again, we, we hold both of those things in our hands, our responsibility to be faithful, um, you know, and understanding that ultimately we have what we have because that's God's desire. You know, and it doesn't matter how it gets there. I mean, listen, if if one political party maintains control for the next 20 years because they cheat every election, that's God's sovereign hand still in working in yes. the way that he wants to work to give us Amen. the leaders he wants to give us. Um, and God will still hold them responsible, right? And we see that absolutely. too in the Old Testament. Like there's there's nations that are raised up and God in the, in the same prophecy will say, I'm going to raise this nation up to judge you. And I'm going to judge that nation for their wickedness. Like yeah. he's in control of that. And he's, it's not like he's saying, yeah. oh, I, I let them off scot-free uh, for their wickedness either. He's going to judge both of them. Uh, just because we've mentioned it a couple of times, I just want to read it. So it's not, you know, my words or summation. Like it's in Matthew 7. This is the the Sermon on the Mount and the um, the the kingdom. You know, I always tell people that the Sermon on the Mount is like the stump speech for the kingdom. It's the main, mm -hmm. it's the platform of kingdom living, right? And he says, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Like there's so much language there about bigger on one side, smaller on the other side, many on one side, fewer on the other side. Like it's, it's clear, it's emphatic language that the way of the kingdom is narrow and is found by fewer link. I don't, I don't know any way to get around that teaching. It's so explicit that it's, you know, the minority of people 
in comparison with the majority who are on the Broadway. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, again, historically, when the church experiences persecution, and I think we both agree, no one should be praying for that. We shouldn't Amen. desire to be persecuted. We don't want any any of us to suffer, um, not in a selfish way, but we don't want to wish that on others. But we still have to recognize that, look, the, the church has always gotten stronger because it's been purified. Um, right. You know, my church since October, the last week of October, we've been going through Reformation history um, on, on Wednesday nights. And, you know, week after week, we're looking at the history of uh, persecution, the reformers and how the church has spread. I mean, it's incredible. It's heartbreaking um, to, to see the persecution, but you see that in in the midst of just intense persecution where there seems to be no hope, the gospel, the true gospel spread like wildfire. Mm -hmm. um, those false professors fell away. And what you're left with is a people who love the Lord and are willing to sacrifice everything for his glory's sake. They're willing to sacrifice everything to see people come to the saving knowledge of Christ Jesus. And that's, that's always been the case um, when persecution is in the church. And in America, I think, I mean, we've been so blessed and, and it is God's blessing and we hope that that continues. Um, but again, I think we we're forced to acknowledge, we see something different. Um, right. that blessing is cl God's clearly removed his hand. Um, yeah, and on that purification think... piece, it starts with leadership, right? So John 10, right? We know the good shepherd mm -hmm. passage. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is hired hand and not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own known me. Of course, he's talking about himself in salvation, but we also see kind of the leadership principles mm. of those who are the hired hands, who don't have a true love for the sheep and a true uh, affection for those that God has called them to be. When persecution comes, they're going to flee. And we could see this, I think, you know, to keep it on realm of politics, I think we see this being lived out in Donald Trump on the issue of abortion. When abortion was a winning issue for him, he was a lot stronger on it. But after the last couple election cycles, since uh, Roe versus Wade has been overturned and we've seen that abortion isn't the winning issue as it once was, uh, now he's starting to soften off. He's fleeing like a hired hand from this issue because he doesn't have a true love for the sheep. He doesn't have a true understanding of the righteous decision. We'll see that same thing in the church. As persecution comes, those who are going to be the quickest to fall away are going to be the leaders who are more hired hands than shepherds. And that's a that's a dangerous place to be, um, to be led by one who's willing to flee when persecution comes. And like, there is no justification for that. I think there's there's becoming this kind of trend to justify fleeing as a leader. And I would challenge anybody who's making that case, wrestle with John chapter 10. Like, are you acting more like the good shepherd or are you acting more like a hired hand? When persecution comes... Your role, part of your role as a as a shepherd, a, a small s shepherd under the big s good shepherd, your role is to protect the sheep. And yeah. fleeing is not protecting. <laughs> fleeing is more indicative of being a hired hand than following the example of the good shepherd and how he shepherd his people. So there will be, as persecution comes, a purification, and it will start with leadership. And that will be a good thing. 
Like it will be good that the Lord exposes those who are hired hands because though they may not know it now, there are some way that they're neglecting the sheep. And it's better that that be exposed and, and someone who truly loves those sheep and who is willing to to step in and truly shepherd them uh, takes on that mantle. So that that is one way in particular that persecution and difficulty um, is used to help the church, to strengthen the church, and to purify the church. And it, it will start with leadership. Yeah, I, I mean, and you see that in church history. The, 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 ones who, the ones who fleed were the unfaithful ones. In fact, we just this last Wednesday um, wrapped up our conversation about the radicals, the Anabaptists. Um, and, you know, William, and I can't remember his last name, who kind of was started to be the head of that. And, of course, the um, Catholic uh, abbot who left uh, ultimately became that. But it was interesting because William, who sort of started that movement, was wanted to defend against Rome, uh, you know, with the sword. And and every time they came, he, he's the one who ran so that there mm. would be another day. And what's especially interesting is that in his fleeing at the end, um, he ended up recanting his faith, working for um, the, the, the Rome side, the Roman Catholic side, got extraordinarily wealthy. Um, and while he watched everyone that supposedly he was shepherding basically be murdered and and so we just that that's just true. Um, the strong stand and fight, right? Um, and it, you know, I'm reminded of passages like First Corinthians five fifteen fifty eight. I mean, here you go. Here's Bible on standing firm and not fleeing. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Um, you get to Ephesians. Um, chapter six, and there's no fleeing language in that. Um, put on the shield of faith, the, uh, the sword of the spirit, the helmet of salvation, um, the feet of the gospel. That's all defensive stand and fight, you know, um, language. And so, yeah, absolutely. And so I think, um, yeah, we've got to have a different perspective on um, the decline of society. Again, we're not saying throw your hands up and give up right. obviously um but this I is, think that's like the is, 14th time that we've given that disclaimer so I appreciate yeah I try that. to I try to say it every so often because you know how yeah. it is people take sound totally. lights and they yeah they it, it's just to, to drill that into people but you know think about second Timothy 3 12 through 14 I mean I love this passage he says indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So this American mentality that if God's, if you're faithful, if God's blessing you, then everything's going to kind of get better, be better, life's going to be easier. It's just in stark contradiction to everything that we're taught in scripture. Um, he goes on to say, but evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worst, uh, deceiving mm. and being deceived. Um, there's nothing about it getting better there. And so he acknowledges that. But then in, in 14, he says, but you. So Timothy, all these things are going to happen. You're, the, those who are godly are going to experience some kind of persecution in this world. And evil men and imposters, false professors, they're going to go from bad to worse. That's the direction everything's going to go. You just need to know that. But but you continue in the things you've learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you've learned them. And he's just finished talking about the faith that Paul's instilled in him, the faith that he's grown up in with his grandmother and mother 
Um, and so, yeah, I, I think we, we don't want persecution, but we acknowledge it's coming. We see it. We see the decline of society. And so, yeah, we, we vote, we, um, oppose abortion. Uh, I mean, I'm a, I'm a staunch abolitionist. Um, it, it, you know, murder at one week is still murder, you know, mm-hmm. so it's gotta be all or nothing. And so we do everything we can to save life, to promote righteousness. But at the end of the day, um, I still recognize that what we have, we have at the hand of God. And, and ultimately, it's always with a redemptive purpose. Yeah. You know, God doesn't do this. Um, he, he doesn't turn uh, nations over to their depravity for any other reason than it is a just and loving verdict. And there's always a redemptive purpose. We might not always see it as clearly as that, but we do have that theme all throughout scripture. And so the believer, I think you would impress upon your people just like I would, you know, stand for righteousness, do the things you can do, um, take responsibility, but rest in knowing that um, this is all under the control of God and it's going to be good. And, you know, we may suffer and, and no one's going to enjoy that. I don't think anyone should enjoy that, but I think we should be looking to find those ways in which God is going to move the church forward. How's he going to purify the church? How's he going to purify me? Maybe for some of us, we've gotten too dependent upon the government, um, you know, and what better way to break that than to rip that illusion away from us? Right. You know, again, I don't think we desire it, but we see it happen, you know, so. Yeah, I agree. And I think like, uh, I think it was, I'm paraphrase Spurgeon because I'm not nearly as eloquent as him, but, you know, he described Christian maturity is is coming to that point when you learn to praise the Lord for the wave that crashes you against the rock of Christ. Like, I think there's a sense in which we need to learn to to see God's goodness in all of his provision for his people. We we more easily see that when things are going well. We easily praise the Lord when all the bills are paid, we have a little extra coming at the end of the month, everything seems to be going well, prosperity is, is abounding. Uh, but he's also good when he disciplines us. He's also good when he sends circumstances, uh, including sometimes through governments, to to discipline his people. That is an act of a loving father um, to discipline his people. And I think we need to see God's goodness in that and truly see uh, the, you know, the the sovereign goodness that's in that versus just say, well, it's, it's not pleasant in the moment. We focus way too much on whether or not it's pleasant in the moment, whether or not it's going according to our plans, rather than recognizing and yielding to the plans of God and seeing them as good, like seeing them on grand scale as good, sovereign outworking of his redemptive plans, right? Um, You know, it was in the long run, in the big picture, a good thing that God used the persecution of the nonconformist to send groups of them to the new world. That has led to, in many, many ways, uh, the spread of the gospel around the globe in that thing. Was it pleasant in the moment for those people? No. Did it make it okay that they were 
uh, for the individuals who were participating in that persecution? No. And yet still, we could see God's good design in it, God's grand plan at work. I think when we see that in history and that providence in history, it should be the the way that we recognize he's doing the same thing now, even though we don't know the end of it. We don't know how it's going to outwork itself and how it will be for his good. That's where faith comes in, right? Because faith is the believe in things not seen, to trust in things not seen. So we don't see what's going to happen now. We don't see how he's going to use it. And yet we still know he's going to use it because his word says so. I talk to our people all the time, like, are you going to believe the Lord and his word are you going to believe your own lying eyes, your own fallen brain's interpretation of your circumstances? That's a that's a decision of faith on a grand scale that we have to make about so many different things. I'm going to trust what the Lord says about government being a minister of God for my good, even when it seems like we're a wicked government. Like, this is, somehow this is working out for my good and for the good of all of his people in the progress of his sovereign plans. I'm going to choose to see that by faith, even when it doesn't seem like that in my circumstances. Um, and that same thing is true in our individual things, right? Your boss is God's uh, delegated authority for your good in that workplace. He's the governing authority in that workplace, and he's put there by God for your good. Now, it may not be, it may not mean that he's righteous. It may not mean that his treatment of you is righteous, but He's what God has designed for your good now. Spurgeon also said, like, if there's any better circumstances for you to be in, that's where God would have you. Where he has you right now is his best, wisest plan for you right now for what he's attempting or for what he's going to accomplish in your life in perfecting you and making you more like Christ and ultimately bringing all things to his glorious ends. We win in the end, right? Christ wins in the end. And so those who are in Christ win with him. Yeah. All that's happening now is his working towards that. That is certain. That is sure. That is that is finished in terms of being an accomplished work, even though it hasn't been experienced and lived out. And so we rejoice in that. We rest in that truth. And we are able, we use that to enable us to walk by faith in the here and now so that we're living in light of that truth, right? In uh, yeah. Titus chapter 2 after he's given all of the um, instructions for how people are to live, what practical life is to look like, in Titus chapter 2, he reminds them of the undergirding of all that, and starting in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. So he's brought salvation, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So we got the past tense effect. He's brought our salvation. We got the present tense effect. His, his grace through displayed through Christ on the cross, instructs us in how to live here and now, denying God, ungodliness and living in godliness. And in verse 13, we're looking forward, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So his grace displayed on the cross has purchased our pardon, purchased our sanctification, and purchased our glorification. All of that's true. All of that's of his grace. And so we walk in that grace. We walk in that, and we don't trust in our circumstances. We don't allow our evaluation of the effectiveness of his grace at any point for our salvation, for our sanctification, for our glorification to be dependent on what we see in our circumstances. 
We trust that he has done it and that he's going to bring it to his ultimate ends. It will all be lived out according to his plan. And we rest in that truth as we walk in that truth. Yeah. Amen. And, and I think, you know, just as to make sure, you know, we're not, by no means are we saying that God is the author of sin. We're just Amen. saying he uses, right? Um, right. Sinfulness and wicked rulers to accomplish his plans and purposes. And so I think people understand that. But, you know, it's interesting. You, you brought up that passage in Romans 13, verse 4, where it says it, it's a minister of God to you for good. And I had an instant thought that, you know, I think that exposes how much, even in our circles, um, we've been affected by the prosperity gospel. Mm. Because we hear for our good, and I think our natural thought is it means our life should be easier. Yep. Um, and so we don't think about um, having wicked rulers as being for our good. But but then I think, you know, we forget about the context in which Paul is writing this. Um, I mean, so look at the Roman em emperors. I think I might be. Mistaken, it's either Caligula or Nero. It's either Caligula it, yeah. or Nero that yeah. he's writing so, that under, depending on where you date so it. So he's right Both under there. Evil. Both absolutely, absolutely evil. Do a study on the Roman emperors at some stage. It's fascinating. I love the history. I, I mean, Nero, he, here's a guy who, I mean, basically burns down Rome and, because he's insane and he blames it on the Christians and, and lots of his own people didn't even believe him. But he, he's persecuting Christians. He's burning them for fun, using them as, you know, torches in his gardens. Um, you know, they're being uh, put in coliseums with wild beasts for entertainment. And, and that's the setting, the kind of environment in which Paul is writing. Every person is to be in subjection to their government, for there's no authority except from God. And I think, man, we forget that. When Paul wrote this, he's telling Christians to be in subjection, right subjection, right? Um, they're not to bow down and worship uh, the emperor because that's going against God's word clearly, but otherwise— be in subjection to Nero, who's hunting down your family members. Yeah. Um, and it, even if you date that than... book a little bit earlier, because I know some people date it a little bit before the start of Nero's reign, you're talking about yeah. Caligula. So it's it's either, you know, parallel a little bit ours. It's either the sexual revolution portion, because that was Caligula, like he was a sexual deviant to the maximum, yeah. right? Yeah. And which is what we're currently living in, right? Sexual deviancy is the God of our age. Or yeah. it was the next one, which is the persecution. Either way, right? Both of those evil, both of those wicked. And yet God still used that to spread the gospel of the church. Like Paul was able to not only go to Rome, as he talks about hoping to do in that epistle, uh, but in his later epistles, he's talking about there are those of Caesar's household who have turned to the faith, right? And so God still used the wickedness of that ruler, whether it's Caligula or Nero, um, in some way is irrelevant to this. Like they were both wicked and God still used that to save people, to bring about the salvation of his elect, right? We, yeah. we trumpet God's sovereignty over the elect. It's also sovereign over the means of how the elect come to hear the gospel. Yeah. And sometimes that's through Paul being arrested taken to Rome, imprisoned, chained to a soldier. All of those things are part of God's sovereign means yeah. of bringing about salvation of the elect. And so we rejoice in that. We 
um, rest in that. Like it is, it is a glorious thing. Like, it's not like though God is begrudgingly like, oh, this is, you know, people have made a mess of this. What am I going to do with it? Right. Yeah. He's not begrudgingly saving us despite our means. He's orchestrating everything to accomplish his will. And I agree. It doesn't mean God's the author of self or the author of wickedness, the author of sin. Absolutely not. No sin can dwell with him. We would wholeheartedly agree with that. But the Lord is not reacting to humanity's wickedness. Yeah. He is sovereign over what's happening to bring about the best possible plan of redemption. And that's a thing we should celebrate, not just, oh, I, I guess we can accept that. No, yeah. like, this has got to work. He's on the march, right? Like we don't need to be like building kingdoms, you know, building fortifications in the rear with the gear when the Lord's on the march. We should be celebrating yeah. that he's on the march and marching faithfully right alongside him. I feel like we've... We've gone to like this thing where we we feel like the kingdom is building bigger barns and bigger houses for ourselves. Yeah. The the kingdom is spreading. I mean, Christ is moving to draw people to himself. We are to walk. We are to run the race. We are to stand firm in the gospel. All these things are the the language of war and advancement, not mm -hmm. the language of building storehouses, you know, building bigger buildings. Like it's become, seems like it's become a big thing now to be like, oh, look at all these beautiful churches we used to have. Yeah, they sold indulgences to build those big churches. Like, are yeah. we really going to celebrate that nonsense? Like yeah. we need to be on the march with the gospel, trusting in God's sovereign plan, however he brings the advancement of that about. We're just being faithful to walk the race that he's set before us, not to stop and say, okay, you know, I've run my race. Now it's time to to build a big house, to build a big barn and to to bring more people in. Like yeah. run the race, brothers. Don't build a platform. Run the race. Yeah. yeah. John Wycliffe, interestingly enough, who's often held as the morning star, you know, of the Reformation, the pre-reformer, um, yeah. fought against the Catholic Church over that exact thing. And he basically said, what's the church doing with all this lavish, all this property, all these lavish buildings, sell it off um, and, and give it to the poor. Like, what, what are we doing collecting things? Um, but it, yeah, and I, I will say on that, like, I'm not for the opposite, right? I'm not for right, the other yeah, yeah. side where we just treat worship as it can be irreverent in those things, right? And so it's not this yeah. dichotomy. You either waste money yeah. on the lavish cathedral or you give no thought to reverence in worship. So I'm right. not... I'm not but that's assuming not the, the opposite, that's right? But the goal yeah. is worship the spread of the gospel. It's not building monuments of our accomplishments. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so I, I think it's helpful when we think, you know, going back to that Romans passage again, just thinking about the, the emperors. I mean, you mentioned Caligula. It, it, he was so bad that you can't even say publicly some of the things that he did. Right. But he was known. He was known for torture. Um, yeah. sexual deviancy and his his cruelty specifically in torture, and and, and again the, this is so you have one of these guys and this is where Paul's saying the government's for good, and and so I think if we have that mentality, then we do what we can do in the poll it, it, you know in the voting booth, but then but then we walk away saying you know what whatever's whatever's going to happen, it is going to be good. How, how can I how can I be in line with what God's doing? And, and the answer is actually really easy. We don't need a special word from God. It's just are we being faithful and obedient to what Christ has called us to do? 
Um, do we understand the world in which we live? I, I love, I want to go to Matthew 5, 10, because um, th this gives an entirely different perspective of what's become popular today. Um, he says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for their kingdom is in heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, not because you're a jerk, but because you follow Christ. Yeah. Um, 12, he goes on to say, rejoice and be glad for your reward is where? In heaven is great. Amen. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so the hope that Jesus is giving the disciples is not that things are going to get better. He's told them exactly right. the opposite. He says, the hope you need to have is that your reward is in heaven. Um, and so look to heaven. And, and I think if we, get, if we get caught up in the mentality that if we just get the right guy in, if we make these things happen, you know, we can have a Christian kingdom, we can make it all better, um, then what's going to happen is people are going to find themselves disillusioned and lost when that doesn't happen because it won't. Um, it, it, we're told quite the opposite. Now, of course, we've nuance here. I don't really like that word personally, but it exists. Um, there are seasons of reprieve that God grants, obviously. I would say our country's foundation was one of them. Um, yeah. and, and I would agree with you. Um, you know, I don't think that by definition this was a Christian country. Um, and I think uh, the, the, the book you referenced, he labels the most influential um, founders as being um, basically uh, theistic moralists. He uses yep. a different term. But, um, and, and I think that's probably more accurate that's the truth uh but god's blessed our nation so we have seasons of reprieve but over the course of history we're, we're going to see decline and i think that makes sense when you understand what you were talking about earlier that it since i i hear rc sproul now in my head every time i go to say if something is true i i yeah. hear his rebuke of um uh, on the stage but anyway yeah it, since the, the path is narrow to life, there will always be exceedingly more unbelievers, which means wickedness is always going to be um, in, in abundance, right? And they go from bad to worse. But, but our hope is in that which is to come. And we want to stand and be faithful. And so, you know, looking for opportunities um, to, to spread the gospel. The, the, to preach the true gospel. I mean, just look around. There's more despair than there's ever been in my lifetime, at least yep. known, right? I mean, some of the internet, um, it just exposes us to things that were, that it's always been there. It's just not been in our face. So I think yep. we have to be careful to not think the world's ending tomorrow kind of thing. But um, right. we, we see more despair in our country than we've ever seen. We see more suicide than we've ever seen. The insanity, and I mean like genuine insanity. If 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 a man thinks he can be a woman, that that's insanity, right? Right. Um, we see more of that than we ever have before. And my goodness, what incredible in-your-face opportunity um, to see where the gospel is needed. It, it's everywhere. And we see that as an affirmation. Yeah, totally. And we see that as an affirmation of God's truth, right? God's word tells us. All of creation is groaning. It's all perishing and therefore groaning for deliverance. Why would we think 
It's all of creation except for culture. It's all of creation except for politics. No, everything's in decline awaiting deliverance, right? That's not a bad message because that's God's word. And we see that worked out in, in our lives. We see, okay, that's clear. Like God's word is true. It's another example of God's word proving true, which points us to the fact that the deliverance that's coming is also true, also trustworthy, also something that we should rest in and rejoice in. And so um, we see that often that, you know, things are in decline. Well, all of creation is that way. Since the fall, all of creation has been in decline. All of it, yeah. right? Yeah. Yes, God still saves out of that. He has a remnant of people. He's going to ultimately bring and and restore all things, right? We are going to live with him in eternity in his restoration of the heavens and the earth, the new heavens and the new earth. Um, and we eagerly anticipate that. But the validation that we see in the decline now ought to give us more hope, more assurance mm -hmm. of what is promised to come, because it's not like it says, oh, well, it says everything's declining now, but it seems like everything's getting better. Can we really trust yeah. that word? No, it says everything's declining now. Everything's declining. His word is true. Ergo, his word is also true about what is to come. And that should give us a hopefulness, a assurance of yeah. what is to come, not a, oh, well, you know, doesn't look so good. True, but his word says it's not going to look so good. And he's going to come yeah. back and make it really good. Yeah, amen. Well, it, I, I just want to leave our audience with two scripture verses just to kind of chew on. Um, First Corinthians um let's see here yeah first corinthians 16 um 13 paul writes be watchful stand firm in the faith act like men be strong mm. and, and we often use that to to call men to stand up and that's true but i think the general principle is um to stand firm in the faith and, and to stand strongly right um th there's that language of standing again rather than rather than running. Um, and, and then lastly, 2 Timothy. I, I love 2 Timothy um, 4, 2, it's particularly, and I'll read that, but let me just remind people of the setting. So Paul, you know, we believe this time is in the Mamertine prison. This is his like last will and testament, basically. It, you know, he's in prison. This is the end of his life. He gets executed. Um, uh, and he probably thought every time was going to be his last time. Um, I imagine at least that was a possibility, but, you know, certainly uh, things aren't looking well for him. And of all the things he could write, you would expect someone who's about to die, whatever they write, be the most important thing they could think of. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, incredible, incredible letter. And as Paul's about to be executed, he writes this to Timothy. He says, I solemnly charge you. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, and with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and they'll turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And then Paul goes on to talk about how 
he's being poured out. He knows he's about to die. He's fought the good fight. Um, he knows that Timothy being faithful is going to lead ultimately to the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and the principle here, though we refer to these as the pastoral epistles, uh, it, this is applicable for every Christian, right? Be ready in season, out season, preach the word, stand firm in the truth, know that the world's going in one direction and we stand firm against it. Um, right. Looking for those who God has called and predestined. So we preached everyone because in the midst of the chaos are sheep who are lost yet to be found. Um, and those are the ones we're looking for. And so instead of shrinking back and, um, it, you know, taking this, this mentality that we can conquer and make it all better, we're just supposed to stand firm and be faithful. Um, right. You know, we need to evangelize. We need to, um, we're called to holiness, you know, and I think those are the questions we need to be asked, asking. We're, get, we're, we're being given wicked rulers. Why? Is the church holy? Um, have, we, have we turned from holiness? Um, have we turned to worldliness? Um, are, are we praying faithfully? Do we have a love for souls? I, I mean, listen to, listen to Spurgeon's language when he talks about um, the lost. It's incredible. Um, you know, a lot of his sermons weren't expository, uh, but I mean, who am I to criticize Spurgeon? He's a genius. If I knew <laughs> as much, uh, if I could remember as much as he did, then maybe I'd preach as well as he did. But, um, but he talks about if if souls have to go to hell, let them have to leap over our dead bodies. Mm-hmm. You know, let them let them go to hell dragging us behind because our arms are wrapped around their their feet, pleading with them to submit to Christ. Um, I think those are far more faithful ways of considering what's happening in the world around us than just trying to get in the right guy because the right guy's going to get in um, because he's going to be God's guy, uh, whether he brings persecution and purifies the church or he grants reprieve, um, both is God's will, you know, we just have to be faithful. Totally. I just want to add it's uh, from second Timothy four, like after he gives that charge, there's kind of chilling examples at the end of that chapter uh, in contrast, because you have Demas who for love of the world has abandoned him. Right. So <laughs> Demas has abandoned the charge and it's not, you know, for persecution sake, it's for love of the world. Like he wanted worldly things more than he wanted remaining faithful, right? And then Luke is the the contrast to that. He's He says, only Luke is with me. Mm-hmm. Now, if you read some of the earlier prison epistles, Colossians, Philemon, they're both mentioned as passing on greetings. So Demas, not too long before this, was being passed on as a greeting of one who was working alongside Paul, uh, one who was, you know, to be commended, and here, just a few years later, by the end of Paul's imprisonment, it's the love of the world. It's the love of worldly things that have drawn him away in the midst of persecution. And I would say it's it's a really chilling thing that all of us who are leaders in the church need to consider as we think about what's going to happen, whether or not persecution is going to come, whether or not you know the country is going to uh, have a reprieve or not, or slow down the decline or not. Um, we can't say, but there will be constantly the temptation on the leaders of God's people to act like hired hands, 
um, sometimes when persecution comes, and sometimes just for love of the world. Like, I don't have all the things I want to have. I don't have the business built up that I want to have. I don't have the platform built up that I want to have. I don't I don't have the accomplishments even that I want to have. And so I'll start pursuing worldly things instead of just doing the faithful work that you just read from earlier in the chapter, doing the work of the evangelist, staying committed to the charge that's given to us, right? I had the joy of just seeing some clips from the uh, 55th anniversary celebration from MacArthur this past Sunday. And the thing that stood out to me in considering all that has been accomplished through him, 55 years of ministry, preaching through the whole uh, New Testament, writing a commentary series on the whole New Testament, writing countless books, speaking at conferences, all those kind of what we would see from a from a human level as great accomplishments. His summation of it was, I'm a spectator to the work of the Word and the work of the Spirit. His summation of all those things that we could stack up from a from a worldly human perspective as great accomplishments for his cause, right? For the cause of the church. He just says, I'm a spectator of that. He sees God's grace. God did all that, and he gives him all the credit for it. And I think we as as leaders, especially in difficult times, need to be committed to seeing that, to being a spectator to what God is doing and participating where he calls us to, but realizing that it's he that does the work through us. It's not we do the work on our own strength, but it's he that does the work through us, and we'll just be faithful to what he has called us to do as he works out his means of salvation, because the temptation of the world, the temptation of bigger barns and bigger houses will always be there, and it will always be used of the evil one to bring down the leaders of the church. So may we all be on guard against that kind of draw of the world, whether it be politics, business, whatever it may be, worldly success that would draw us away from the calling of Christ uh, to be ministers of the gospel, to hold fast to the truth that we've been taught, to teach it to other faithful men who will teach others as well. We need to be about the mission uh, in everything. Amen. Well, dear believers, I hope that that's been encouraging to you. Stand firm and fight the good fight like Luke. Amen. Resist the temptation to flee like Demas. And until next time, let the truth be known. The Truth Be Known podcast is a theologically driven, gospel-centered program serving the body of Christ by bringing biblical truth to bear on issues facing the church today. Subscribe to the Truth Be Known podcast by using the podcast app on your Apple or Android device or listen online at strivingforeternity.org in the podcast section.